Well, I'm excited to continue our series on the book of Philippians. We are in chapter two this week. And so uh, one, if, if you don't have a Bible, we always have blue ones at the back connection table. I'd love for you to take one of those. I, I think one of the most important and, and most helpful things we can do sometimes is to have a physical copy of the word to be able to underline and take notes so that you can go back and continue to, to kind of let the Lord do that in you. But as I was preparing for this week, I thought about my dog. So I'm a dog person. Uh, We bought my daughter. We have two dogs. We have an English bulldog named Lucy. Um, She kind of got booted to the side once we got this golden retriever for my daughter. Uh, I mean, she's still loved, you know, it's just, she's obviously not the favorite. Um, And so we got my daughter a golden retriever about the time we lost the church. And so she was a six-week-old furry puppy and gave it to my daughter for her birthday. And it's Hannah's dog, but it's my dog. Like we've already argued when she goes to college, that dog's staying. That's my dog. It's like my, my planting therapy dog, I think. My, my, my wife thinks I'm kind of weird. And I, I just, even for my own like, sake, I just wanted to know this. If, so like every now and again, I'll like cuddle up with my dog, right? It's a big, huge 90-pound golden retriever. And I'll give it like a kiss on the head. And my, my wife's like, it's super weird. You make out with our dog. It's kind of disgusting. <laughs> I just want to know, like, if you're a dog person, is there anybody that just kisses their dog? It's th- can you look at this right now? I just want my wife to see that I'm not super weird, okay? Uh, she's not a dog person. But here's what's been interesting, okay? So it's the fall. Uh, we've been really busy this fall. And I do. I have this giant golden retriever. She's majestic. She's beautiful. She's made to be out in the woods. And, um, man, we've just been busy with sports and kids and school. And I've noticed that even though my dog is, like, eating all the time, gets to sleep all day long, has all of her needs met, gets loved on. She gets to lay on the couch. Most days I'm like, man, I just want to be my dog. Uh, What I've noticed is she has become extremely lethargic. Uh, I I can just tell, like something is not full, like I'm just a bad owner. I need to go walk her more probably. But I could tell that she's just a little depressed, a little lethargic because the times that we like go travel, man, my dog loves, like if we go, she's climbed mountains with me. She has swam in rivers with me. Like she loves being what she was kind of made to do. In fact, we were in a river one time. Uh, Me and the kids were swimming. Katie was on the edge of the river. Somehow, like you know, if you have kids, they just lose things and they're like Velcroed on river shoes, pop off and start floating. I'm like, how does that even happen? And so I'm like, there it goes down the current. It's done. My kid's not gonna have their shoe for the rest of the week. And I'm like, Katie, just just see if you can go get it. It's in the middle. And then I'm like, throw a rock at it and just tell, tell Ruby to go out there. And so no lie, my wife throws a rock into the middle of the river and we're like, go get it. My dog swims out there, grabs that shoe, comes back with it. I was like, my dog is the most epic dog in the world. Like, that's just awesome to me. And so why? Like, there's joy in my dog when she is fulfilling her purpose as a retriever. Like, she was made to do something, and it wasn't just to eat, drink, be merry, and be lazy, and sit in the couch, and be comfortable and safe. No, like, jumping in the river and going and getting a shoe brings her joy. And you may go, man, I'm not a dog person. This isn't even resonating with me. Maybe you're a cat person. I don't know. Their purpose is like scratching me when I come in, hiding under the bed and defecating in a box in your house. I don't know. That's what a cat's for, I think. I don't know. But regardless, like the point is, man, we have been created. Philippians is trying to teach you and I that we have been created for a huge and magnificent, magnificent purpose to glorify God and to, to elevate the gospel message wherever we go. And if we will walk in that purpose we will actually find joy, right? This, this Philippian series, finding joy in everything. 
Even everything that we looked at last week, if you were here, like it was challenging and it's hard and it's difficult and it kind of makes you assess yourself and go, man, there's a lot still to learn, a lot still to do to follow Jesus the way I'm supposed to. And yet what Paul is screaming in this letter is if you will use your giftings and your abilities and your resources and you will sacrifice for the Lord and you will go whatever the cost I'm going to follow you, you will actually find the most joy possible in the Christian life. We have this option that we'd go, man, a lot of us want to sit on the couch and be comfortable and be safe and eat, drink, and be merry. But we go, man, it's still leaving me empty. And God and Paul are calling us in Philippians to live for the glory of God, which is not going to be safe or comfortable. And it's not going to be easy and it will cost. And Paul is yelling at you and I, but you will find joy if you walk in this manner. And so with that being said, I want us to jump into Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look mostly at verses 1 through 18. If you want to read 19 to the end, it's great, but we're not going to look at it this morning because there's some important stuff to look at in 1 through 18. So if you weren't here or if you were, if you back up just a little bit to Philippians 1.27, Paul makes this remark, right? He's talking to the Philippian church that he planted. He's talking to these people that he loves. He's talking to people that are really faithful and have really been following the Lord, but there's also been a little bit of disunity. They've had a little bit of outside pressure from people preaching false gospels. And he commands them in Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it's this massive call to unity, to living out our divine purposes, to putting God as first and us as second, he says, walk worthy to the manner, uh, in, walk in a worthy manner of the gospel. And then we get into chapter two. And here's what I love about Paul, really any scripture for the most part. We have prescriptive verses and we have descriptive verses, right? A prescriptive verse is like a doctor prescribing something to you. It's like, you need to do this. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Stop being stupid and do these things. But whenever we have prescriptive verses in scripture, they're usually always either prefaced with a descriptive verse or they end with a descriptive verse. And what I mean by that is Paul is gonna remind us of the why. Like it's easy for us to go, man, just tell me what to do. But if we don't have proper motivation, if we don't have our minds focused on the reason, we kind of lose the fervor in our love to do what we wanna do. And so he's gonna begin before he jumps into some prescriptions for us in two with some descriptive verses. Look at what he says, chapter two, verse one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, you can underline that, encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. And so what he's gonna do before he jumps into going, hey, here's, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's what a, a life worthy of the gospel looks like. He says, I want you to, to remember and think on, do you have encouragement in being in Christ? And man, as I was studying, I was like, man, we need to pause for a moment because I don't think often enough we, we remember and we meditate on what does it mean to be in Christ? Like what is the encouragement that you have practical encouragement that we have for being Christians this morning. 
And so if I, if I wrote all of them, uh, an hour sermon, a 30-minute sermon would never get it done, but I've written down a couple, and I want you to see these. And you may just write these verses out to the side, but they'll be on the screen. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 says that we are made sons and daughters. Listen to what it says. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And this isn't like my relationship with my son, Micah. It's not like your relationship with your dad. This is a perfect heavenly father that loves his sons and daughters and will always be faithful and always care for us. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You are now a son and a daughter. There's encouragement in this. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 that we were given grace before the world began. This is big. Listen to this. Who saved us, called us to a holy calling, this higher purpose, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He's going, look, you didn't earn this. You didn't work for it. You didn't wake up one day and go to church and go, man, I want to love Jesus today. He said he's called you out by name. He has this holy purpose for you. And then listen to what it says which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The grace that you have received from Christ was given to you in Jesus before the world began. That's insane. Like he knew your name before you were even formed in your mother's womb. He said, I'm going to lavish my grace on you. Look at Ephesians 1, 4. You were chosen by God before creation even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, literally before you drew a breath. He goes, you're mine. I'm going to come and I'm going to save you and I'm going to call you holy and I'm going to call you righteous and nothing can take that away because you were mine before the creation of the world. His love and his his mercy towards us is unfathomable. And the last one, Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, we were redeemed and forgiven of our sins. And this is something we say every day, but we forget the potency of it because we forget how big our sin is. But Ephesians, 7 says, or Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. He has purchased us. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He's poured out his grace and mercy on us. I mean, just take a moment to go, like this doesn't feel big when you're like, I did pretty good this week. But man, go back to some of the places that you go, man, if, if anybody in this room really knew that about me, I would be so filled with fear and shame and guilt. And he's going, I've forgiven that. The dark stuff, the deep stuff. And Paul says, listen, if you have encouragement in Christ, he's really saying since there's encouragement in Christ, And he continues on. We find our hope in him. Then he says, comfort in love. If you have any comfort in love, 1 John 4, 7 through 12, listen to what it says. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. So this is, again, this idea of unity in the church, this idea of brotherhood and sisterhood, this idea of elevating others instead of ourselves. Let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever Loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So he says, do you have encouragement in Christ? Have you experienced this love that knows no bounds? And then he goes on, he says, if there's any participation in the spirit, this Greek word for uh, participation is koinia. Really, that just means fellowship. What he's saying is we have now fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And then he says, share in the affection and sympathy of Christ, how he has shown us sympathy and affection. And what he's saying now, he's saying all of these things, if you have encouragement, if, you, if you're going to share in his sympathy and affection, if you're going to be uh, participating in the spirit, if you're going to find comfort in his love for you, then he says, make my joy complete. How do we show this? By the church having the same love, one mind, and being in full accord of one mind. So he calls us to unity. And then he gives us, <laughs> this is the description. He's going, man, because of the love of Christ, because it's so huge, because it's so grand, here's what I want you to do in response to that. And here comes the hard stuff. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another's more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He says, if you have this encouragement, if you've experienced this love, if you have this fellowship in the spirit, if you have affection and sympathy that you've received from Christ, we're gonna do this for one another now. He is our example, he's our empowerment. We're gonna do this together and it starts with humility. And let's be honest, guys, like it's hard enough to think of my own family as more significant than me. Like, let's just get real, right? <laughs> But a stranger or someone in the church, maybe that just rubs me the wrong way, I'm supposed to elevate you above myself? I'm supposed to look out for your interest above my own? And he says, look to what Christ has done. And you, you live this out in the church and the world will look on and go, this is radically different than anything we've ever seen. And so humility, what does it say it actually is? It's to count others as more significant, but then look at this, to pay attention to others what they need. Man, this is not easy. Like humility sometimes, I think in the church, we've gotten really good at self-deprecation, right? It's almost like a false humility. You're like, man, you're so amazing. You're like, oh, I'm just an idiot, dude. God's just, praise God, he's taken this idiot and done good things. Like that's, that's what we've kind of narrowed humility down to. And this isn't really what it's saying humility is. It's saying humility is you have a genuine desire, a, a genuine uh, uh, call to elevate others and care for actually what they need. Now, this is hard. Like I think about, we live in a world right now that is training us literally to do the opposite of this. I'm not against social media. I mean, I'm against some of the things on social media, but social media is teaching us to do the exact opposite of this. What it has trained us, what it has conditioned us to do is go, I think the world is really interested in my story. Like I'm by far probably the most important person. And so what we do is we take pictures of ourselves eating and we take pictures of our kids sitting in flowers and we take pictures of our vacations and we go, man, look, everybody at my story, you're so, I know you're interested. 
15 likes. Like, that's two of those were my parents. I don't even know who the other people were. This is good. And what it conditions us to do is think, man, my story, my, my, my world trumps everything else. But let's be real. Like, can we just be real for a minute? Like, no one really cares that your kids are sitting in the flowers. And I definitely don't care that you ate enchiladas at the taqueria last night. I just don't care. Like, the only reason we like each other's posts is because we're hoping we'll get liked in return. But what it conditions us to do is when we get with other people, all we're focused on is trying to elevate my story. And I can't even listen to your story anymore. It's in us. Dude, my wife, she just started work not too long ago at Ascension, the hospital. She worked Wednesday night, I think, and they had an active bomb threat at the hospital. I was like, this is a great job. I'm so glad we took this. <laughs> so she comes home that night. Dude, she's working like, she leaves at 5.40 a.m. She gets home like 9.30 that night, for real. I mean, you're talking about like working. So she comes through the door. I'm tired. I'm trying to get ready to go to bed. And she tells me the whole story. And I'm, in, I'm interested. Like, dude, I want to know. Like, praise God you didn't die. Like, what? you had to will everybody outside. That's insane. So she's telling me all the things, and she's processing for herself, just like, here's my story, and I need to figure out, did I do everything right? So I listen to it all, like a really good husband, and then I go to sleep. And then we wake up in the morning, I wake up early, I get my coffee, I'm about to go have my quiet time with the Lord, and she starts telling me, like, word for word, the same story, all of it. Like, starting at the beginning, she's, she's still needing to process what just happened last night. And no lie, I'm like, I, I know all of this. In my mind, I'm like, I know all this, but I've been studying this, I'm going, okay, in my mind, she's speaking, and I'm going, okay, I need to elevate her above myself, so I'm going to be actively engaged. I, I've literally, everything you're saying, you said last night, but I'm not going to, usually I'd be like, babe, you already told me all this. But I'm, like, I'm going to listen, because you need this for some reason. And about halfway through the story, Katie's like, you are working really hard to listen to me right now. I was like, I am, for real. I'm working, but I'm in it. I'm in it, right? Why? Why is it? It's just difficult. It's difficult to listen to people. It's not our nature to want to be Hey, how can I elevate you above myself? Like, I got things to do. And you're telling me a story you've already told me. I don't want to listen again. But God's going, no, are we, to, real genuine humility is looking out for the interest of others and what they need. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, here's what he said real, authentic, godly humility looks like. Here's what he said. I think we have this quote. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you uh, that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. I love this. Right, there's this genuine humility where we're not working towards it. We're not trying to go, okay, I need to listen to my wife right now because I'm, be, I'm gonna be like Christ, maybe at first. Uh, but it, it's this idea that, man, it just is a part of who we are. And if we're not, if we're honest this morning, like that's just difficult. It's not our nature. And so Paul is about to show us, like how do we really grasp this? How do we live in this in a way that he is glorified and, and, and people are literally elevated above ourselves? And he says, look to Jesus. Starting in verse five, 
He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is an important part, this first sentence. He says, he is your example. So I want you to imitate Christ. We know this. Like we know the call is, yes, I'm supposed to look like Jesus and think of other people as more uh, than my own. But how do I do that? He says, have this mind. He's your example. But then also he says, it's in you. You have this in Christ Jesus. He's not just our example, but he is our empowerment to do what we're called to do. And so Paul's going to say, look at his example and then remember that the Spirit of God lives in you to accomplish this. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of his servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the example is look to Christ. And he took his, his divinity, his rightful throne. He said, I'm going to come down. I'm going to make myself human. I'm going to live and breathe as you and I do. I'm going to be tempted as you and I are as humans, yet without sin. And then I'm literally going to pour myself out to the point of death for the sake of my enemy, for the sake of my creation. He literally elevated you and I above his own rights, his own needs. And the Bible says that he found joy in doing this as well. And Paul says, hey, this is the mind to have. Like you are who you are because someone named Jesus showed you divine humility, divine love. He elevated you up in a space you should have never been in to save you. And then I love what happens after this. We see this humility in Christ, but then look what God does. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Literally every atom, every molecule, every part of creation, the, it, the Revelation says even the fish. Hebrews, or, uh, uh, Colossians, or Colossians, uh, Corinthians talks about the earth. Like all of it is going to bow to Jesus as King and Lord and with the, its mouth, however that looks, declare that he is the King. Man, what that means is Satan and the demons want they are going to bow their knee and they are going to confess Jesus as Lord. They're not going to want to, but they're not going to be able to not. Every staunch atheist that hates faith is going to bow their knee and confess Jesus as Lord. Every hyper-religious, self-righteous, pious person that has ever lived is going to realize this wasn't about me and my works. It is about you, King Jesus. And they're going to bow their knee and they're going to confess him as Christ. You and I are going to bow our knee and we're going to confess him as Christ, as king. And people will do it willingly or unwillingly, but it's going to happen. Why? Because Christ was the ultimate example of humility. God has an uh, economy in which he says, if you bring yourself low, he will actually elevate you. James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Christ is the ultimate form of humility, and he has the ultimate exaltation. But for you and I, he's also saying, hey, listen, why do you find joy in being like Jesus? 
because I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to be with you. You're going to find hope and joy and peace in actually giving yourself away. And he says, moving on into verse 12, here's what happens when you and I live this way. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my present, but presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's going, look, you, church, you have been obedient to Christ when I was there, continue to be obedient when I'm not there, and here's the call. Work out your faith with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What in the world does that mean? What in the world does it mean to work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling? I think it is this idea of a lifelong commitment to continue to steer your soul and your life towards true north, right? We're kind of constantly doing this, but we've committed by faith uh, through the power of the Spirit that we're constantly going, I'm going to follow you. This is working out your salvation with fear and trembling, in fact, I remember meeting with someone I really looked up to, just a really godly man. Uh, I got to have breakfast with him, and I asked him, I was like, man, what, what does it look like to, to glorify God with your life? Like, how do you do that? How do you do that personally? And he said, Matt, what I look at is I try to be faithful to the day. Like, working out your salvation with fear and trembling is you wake up each day for all of your life as a believer, and you say, I am going to be faithful to you today, Jesus. I was in the car with my kids just this week. My, my youngest is six, and he's starting to ask deep questions that I don't know all the answers to, which makes me feel real dumb. But anyway, he says, Dad, how do we know? Like, how do we know God's real? You haven't seen him? How do you know? I'm like, dude, you're six. Just watch VeggieTales. I don't know. <laughs> but this is a real thing, right? Like, like how do we hear from God? How is it if we're supposed to, like last week, we're going to pursue knowing the knowledge and the excellencies of Christ so that our love may abound more and more? How does that look like for you when you leave this place? And here's what I told my kids, and maybe it helps you. I don't, I don't have the exact answer, but I think it's this idea of pointing your spirit and your mind and your heart and your soul towards Christ faithfully each day. And you may go, dude, when I read the Bible, I have no idea what it says. Like, I don't get stuff like you're talking about in the Word. And here's what I'd say from my personal life, okay? And I'm I'm real jacked up. You guys should know that by now. But for me, how I see the faithfulness of God, how how did I answer my my six-year-old that said, how do you know God's real? And and for me, it's this daily going, hey, I I don't understand everything in Scripture, God. But I'm going to pray before I open up this Scripture that you'd speak to me. The Bible says, if you lack knowledge, ask for it, and he will give it freely. So I pray, Jesus, would you speak to me? And then I I also pray, like, here's the things I need a word from you about. Like, here's what's heavier. Here's what's going on. And I need you to speak directly to me. And man, as you begin to open up the pages of Scripture, which are living and active, I believe he, not every time, but very often he begins to answer through something you read exactly what you were praying for. But it doesn't happen all the time. And so that's part of why it's this daily going, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to daily line myself up that you could speak to me. And that way, when he does decide to speak to us through his word, we're there and we're ready. And so to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is faithfulness to the day. And I'm telling you, church, if you can get in a place where you go, all right, then I'm just going to get in the scriptures. 
Man, I, I, I encourage you, like, don't just flip around and do a verse of the day. Like, pick a book of the Bible and just read it from beginning to end. And before you open that thing up, you pray, God, would you give me knowledge and wisdom and insight? Help me to see things that I can't see on my own. And would you, would you speak to me specifically about this thing that's in my life? And I can guarantee you at some point, you're going to read and you're going to go, holy cow, the, the God of the universe just spoke to me. And that's what my kids were asking. Like, how, how do you hear from God? There's not some magic, like, spiritual thing we got to do. He just says, go to me. Pray and I will, I will respond. And so he says, work out, your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his, his good pleasure. Here's what I love. Everything that Jesus is doing in you and I is literally not about us. It's about him, his glory, his pleasure. And we just benefit. Verse 14, so how do we do this? What does humility look like? What does working out our, our salvation with fear and trembling look like within the church? It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the, world, the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out that, uh, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He says, if we do this, we will shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and dark generation. You've heard Jesus say this before, but I want us to read it again. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Here's what Jesus says of you and I that are in him. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's our divine purpose? To be salt, to be light, to make Jesus famous, to make his name known, that his story would be the first story that we're telling people about, not the taqueria. And here's how it says we do this. You'll be lights in a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How? Verse, verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. And we live in a generation. Actually, I, I met a guy that was a pastor um, out in Grosbeck this week. I was buying a pressure washer. That's super random. But I was out there buying a pressure washer for me. He's retiring. Been a pastor for 30 years. And he's in a major uh, denomination that, that everybody's familiar with. I won't say who it is, but he was like, man, the last two years uh, of this little small country church in Grosbeck, he was like, I took us out of this mainline denomination uh, because they have pivoted so far um, from what Scripture says is right and wrong. Uh, and he said it was really difficult. The people that had been this mainline denomination for a long time, that had all the money in this small church, uh, they didn't respond well to that. And so it's been hard. And we're actually excited about our retirement and uh, having time to heal is what his wife said. 
right now, even in the church, we live in a culture that, that we, we don't really know what Scripture says is true. Uh, it, it is our barometer. It is our, not our barometer, it is our compass uh, for what is morally acceptable. And so we live in a culture now that has just gone crazy off the deep end with what is morally acceptable. Uh, it's based off of how we feel or how something makes us feel is really how we're saying truth resides now. And even in the church, if we're not careful, we go, man, I love God. I don't really know what the scripture says, but I love God. And we find ourselves doing the same thing. We had a men, our men's prayer gathering the other day uh, and Austin Rhodes, our exe- uh, executive pastor, he did the Devo. And I love what he said and has stuck with me for about the last week and a half. He was sharing a scripture and he just talked about how that people in that day had begun to take uh, what the Bible says is wrong and call it right. Uh, What what they've done is said, man, things that are unholy, we now call holy. And and we live in a culture doing the same thing. And and we see it in the church as well. And if there's any way to lose your saltiness or to hide your light under a basket, it's to begin to pursue after things that God says, this is not right and you have called it wrong. And so for some of us, we call Netflix, Netflix originals really good entertainment when it's no more than soft porn. We call getting drunk with our Christian friends social drinking. We call obscenities and and cussing and coarse joking just normal speech because what do words really matter? We call unhealthy living and eating just enjoying good food. We call hoarding material things and money as financial prudence. We call sacrificing our marriages and our families as just a season of life. We call selfish, non-missional living just being too busy. And if we're not careful, what we do as believers is we begin to call what is unholy, holy. And we lose our salt and we lose our light and we're a lot like my dog, Ruby. That you're growing fat, that I'm growing fat, eating, drinking, and being merry. That I'm growing fat, giving myself what the culture said is okay. And we lose our calling and our purpose. And in the end, it leaves us broken and empty and lethargic. And Paul is calling us to something a lot better. Like this, this scripture is calling us to joy, church. Like the things that God is trying to do in you is for his glory and your good. And we are just forgetful. And we just constantly go, man, I know that God says this, but I feel like these things are what give me pleasure and joy. This is where I'm finding life. And then we get to the bottom, we go, this sucks. (laughs) And Paul is saying, hey, listen, if you will live in a manner worthy of the gospel, you will find joy. But what that means is that we've got to hold together with our salt and our light, that we've got to call this higher purpose, his story, what is most purposeful for us. And if you will do that, Scripture's teaching us, Philippians is teaching us that China Spring and Waco will look on and go, this is not normal and I want this. And you will find real life that you are seeking out of everything else that doesn't give it. And the world is dark and broken and crooked. And we are called to be light by living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Our response to do you have encouragement in what Jesus has done for you? 
Does this motivate your life enough to go, if it costs, I'm in. If I give it all away, I'm in. If it takes away all my hopes and dreams, I'm in because you're worth it. Listen to how Paul ends this section, church. He's telling the Philippian church, he's like, man, if you'll do this, my joy will be complete and, and I won't have run in vain. Not being in prison for you, being in prison now, being beaten and left for dead, literally not having any life of my own, but only what Christ desires for me. It won't be in vain if you'll do this. And then listen to what he says. Verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He says, my example is Christ who poured himself out as a sacrifice to the point of death. He's going, I will give you everything if it'll mean you'll come to know Jesus. I will pour out all of myself and that is what, what does he say? He says, I will, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And then look what he says to end in 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And he says, if you'll do this, if you'll catch on to the economy of God of giving your life away for the sake of the gospel and finding it, you will rejoice and have joy as well. But it takes work and it takes sacrifice. And we've got to behold Christ and go, you're worthy of it all. And so here's my prayer for us, that you would run hard after your joy in your life, but that you would realize the only place you're gonna find it is in giving your life away for Christ. That you would walk with humility and purpose, that you would abound in love more and more by growing in knowledge, by just daily going, Christ, I need you to speak to me. Would you show me who you are? And would you look to Christ this week would you measure your glory next to his glory? And would you walk and clothe yourself in humility and compassion and shine as light in a dark world? Would you pour yourself out for the glory of God and the name and the re renown of Jesus and find joy? Let me pray. And so God, we thank you for your word. <laughs> we thank you for your love for us. God, we want to shine as light in the world, and it is difficult. God, it's even gotten so crooked as we don't really always know what is holy and not holy anymore. And so I pray for us as a people in this room that we would know what you've called us to, that we would hold fast to what you say is right and holy and that we would flee from what is unholy so that we would not only glorify you, but that we would find life abundant. God, we want to be a people that aren't just a church that gathers on Sunday, but that our love for one another, our humility for those around us, our, our being um, a representative of Christ because you are our, our example and we're empowered spirit that people look on and they go, man, I want to know who Christ is that the world has to show. And so God, as we respond today, Lord, I, I just believe that there's just some confession and repentance that needs to happen. I think for, for us that there's moments that we probably just need to confess the places in our life that we've called good uh, that are really not. I think we need to confess those areas of our life where 
Uh, we think our story is uh, of most importance. And, and so we struggle to, to elevate others above ourselves. And so God, we, we just pray that you would move in us. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that when we fail so, so desperately in these things that it doesn't shape how you view us. We're saved and we're held in your hand, but we're called to something so much greater than what we settle for. And so, Spirit of God, would you do what only you can do during this time in our hearts? Move us towards obedience. Help us to see clearer this morning. And so you have your way in us, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.